Hello and good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast. Good morning, David. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. I, I'm excited to get into this episode, The Nuts and Bolts. We're doing another foreign affairs article. This is on the war in Yemen. And I have to admit, I have not read this article yet. We'll be reading it live on stream and on podcast and reacting to it in real time. But I wanted to point out that one reason we read the whole article is so that it's not our impression of what these experts said. It's exactly what these experts said in a edited and fully vetted publication like Foreign Affairs. And I also wanted to point out that the war in Yemen is a tragedy, a human tragedy on a large scale that's occurring in the world. I know this much without having to read the article. And in America, we don't know much about it. We don't hear much about it. And so I think even just taking the time to do something like this is, I think it's important. I I, I agree, David. Uh, the um, the uh, tragedy and the carnage and the human waste, uh, I mean, not the human, the, the waste of human potential and and uh, the death and starvation in Yemen is is terrible. And when it happens to anybody in the world, it happens to us. It's 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 part of our it's part of humanity. And I think there are neighbors and we have to look out for our neighbors, whether they're next door or they're across the world. Uh, I, I think it's important to be aware uh, of, of what's going on. Also, when you read it, uh, you get the context, mm-hmm. you get the ta- context. Uh, Robert Malley and Stephen Pomper, uh, they're the authors of this Uh the uh, how America enables war in Yemen. Uh, I read the article. It's um, very interesting. It's different than the other articles a little bit. I think I thought it was different, uh, but I walked away with um, uh, a different thought uh, than I did on the other articles. Uh, so this is th- the main thing that I want to walk away with uh, to share is uh, this is a serious issue. Uh, this is a very serious issue. And I'm glad we're I'm glad we're we're looking at it. And uh, I think uh, this is only one issue. I think uh, when you have people starving, uh, people being killed, uh, when you have people all over the world, and it's going on for years and years and years, it's not a new war. It's been there for years. That uh, everyone sh- everyone should be outraged about this. And we were talking, David. Americans should be more outraged about the deaths and the starvation in Yemen than they are about how many books Dr. Seuss didn't write or didn't publish. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair point. I, I, I think that the mental capacity to have compassion and to say, what can we do to help these starving children, this war-torn place that's far away, the nuts and bolts of saying, how do we show compassion? How do we extend American benevolence to to help this war-torn place? It's much harder than saying, cancel culture, cancel culture, Dr. Seuss should print his books again. I, it's, it's fascinating to me because it's, it doesn't make sense, but that's, that's where we're at. Well, as we, re- as we read this article, I think, at least what I thought, uh, coming away says yes, we should do something. But P- 
people have done things mm-hmm. and they have not worked. So what do you do? I, I think so. I, I, I don't know about what the article says because I haven't read it, but how America enables war in Yemen, I do think that the issue is, you know, Saudi Arabia is a, is a big ally and a strategic partner in that area. And the Houthi rebels, um, they represent a strategic threat to Saudi Arabia. And so the bad guys in this situation, in theory, I, there are no good guys and bad guys, but one side is our ally, one side's not. But that doesn't mean that our ally acts in the most noble and uh, humanitarian fashion. That's the problem. Yeah. yeah. And, well, as we get into the article, I, I have some thoughts uh, that I'd like to share uh, that just from my perspective. And uh, and actually, uh, another thing, David, is that uh, I know at the end of every broadcast, I say the Sons of Sequoia say, uh, keep on talking and listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. Right. Mm-hmm. I think I go a step further. Not only try to understand what the other person is saying, but try to understand why they're saying it. Mm-hmm. People think differently, and I think we're going to see that uh, here. And that's why things haven't worked. Uh, at least my opinion. One one reason why. And before we get into the article, I'll just say also, you know, we are listening. We're listening by reading the whole article. We're not taking a, a headline and saying, this is what we think. We're saying, these, this is what these people have to say. And these people are Robert Malley and Stephen Pomper. And according to Foreign Affairs, this is their little bio, just so we get some background on who they are. Robert Malley is president and CEO of the International Crisis Group. During the Obama administration, he served as special assistant to the president, White House Middle East coordinator, and senior advisor on countering the Islamic State. Stephen Pomper is the Senior Director for Policy at the International Crisis Group, and during the Obama administration, he served as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Multilateral Affairs and Human Rights at the National Security Council. So, two Obama-era veterans who worked directly with policy in the Middle East, who have gone on to form their own think tank that's sort of devoted to dealing with crises in the Middle East. That's yes. that, that's who we're dealing with. So these people's whole careers is is this specific issue, and I think that's a fascinating dichotomy to think about in the pages of foreign affairs. A lot of times, if someone's writing on Yemen and Saudi Arabia and the American relationship, they actually have spent time analyzing and thinking about this issue. And in fact, this issue crisis in the Middle East or international crisis and White House Middle East policy and American Middle East policy has been a cornerstone of their careers. When you get a journalist on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News telling you what to think about a specific issue, that journalist talks about every single subject that comes onto his teleprompter. These guys that are sort of assessing the situation in the Middle East, this is what they do. And that's sort of the difference between listening to a journalist and listening to an expert. Big, big, big difference. So do Before, we, this 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 article is in the March April issue mm-hmm. of Foreign Affairs, uh, and uh, there's an editor's note that after this uh, article went to press, the Biden administration announced a number of measures that align with the recommendations it made, including reversing the. Uh, so they'd made a lot of uh, recommendations, and a lot of things. Uh, 
uh, including reversing the Trump's administration designation of, of Houthis as a terrorist organization, wow. appointing a special envoy for Yemen, curtailing support for offensive operations by the Saudi-led coalition in the conflict, supporting the UN-led peace process, on and on and on. So uh, they've re- they've from this a lot of the recommendations they said in this article, the uh, the Biden administration, uh, our country has is starting to do, mm-hmm. uh, and also uh, also after the article went to press, one of its authors, Robert Malley, was appointed U.S. special envoy to Iran. Interesting. So so the point is, your point is very well taken, David. That uh, this is not some talking head on some channel on on cable or someplace that's trying to get viewers. And I, I, I I'm sure not that many people even read this article. No, I bet you compared, we. I bet you we're in the out of everyone in America. I bet you ten thousand, less than fifty thousand people have read this article. That's I guarantee that. I think we're in the top one tenth of one percent that actually have read this article, and this is the real this is the real information about the Yemen, about this Yemen crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are dying over there. People are starving. Children are starving and dying. It's it's terrible. Well, shall we get into it? Sure. Let's go for it. Accomplished a carnage. How America enables war in Yemen by Robert Malley and Stephen Pomper. And then here's the editor's note, which you have covered, and I'll get into it. And uh, I'll read the first section. Do you want to tag team sections? Do you want to read today, too? Yeah, sure. That'll be good. Okay, I'll do the first one. In late March 2015, Saudi officials came to the Obama administration with a message. Saudi Arabia and a coalition of partners were on the verge of intervening in neighboring Yemen, whose leaders had recently been ousted by the rebels. This wasn't exactly a bolt from the blue. The Saudis had been flagging their growing concerns about the insurgency on their southern border for months, arguing that the rebels were proxies for their arch-rival, Iran. Still, the message had what Obama administration officials characterized as a five minutes to midnight quality that they had not quite anticipated. Saudi Arabia was going to act imminently, with or without the United States, but it much preferred to proceed with American help. President Barack Obama... President Barack Obama's advisors looked on the decision facing the administration with queasiness. Both of us were serving in senior positions at the National Security Council at the time, one advising on Middle East policy and the other on human rights and multilateral affairs. Everyone in the administration knew the checkered history of the U.S. interventions in the Arab world, most recently in Libya, and was well aware of the president's strong distaste for another one. From Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq, officials knew how hard it was to defeat an insurgency, how promises of a quick victory over a determined group of rebels have a way of disappointing. In this case, there was extra reason to be skeptical. U.S. officials thought Saudi Arabia was exaggerating Iran's role, and they had no illusions that... The Saudi armed forces, although well supplied with modern U.S. weapons, were a precision instrument. In short, there was plenty that could go wrong. As a former senior official would later tell one of us, we knew we might be getting into a car with a drunk driver. And yet, the United States climbed in anyway, thinking that it could offer sober guidance and grab the wheel when necessary. Washington shared intelligence, refueled aircraft, sold weapons, and provided diplomatic cover. Now, almost six years after the Saudi intervention, the war in Yemen is nothing short of a disaster. It has further destabilized the Middle East, empowered Iran, and sullied the United States' global reputation. Above all, 
It has devastated the Yemeni people, who are now experiencing the world's worst ongoing humanitarian catastrophe. Close to a quarter of a million people have died as a result of the conflict, according to the UN, roughly half from indirect causes such as malnutrition and disease. Many millions more are starving or homeless, and with power fragmented among a growing number of Yemeni actors on the ground, the conflict has become even harder to resolve. The United States has had a major hand in Yemen from the beginning, and thus must answer for its part in the tragedy. For reasons both moral and strategic, the Biden administration should make it a priority to disentangle the United States from the war in Yemen and do what it can to bring the conflict to a long overdue conclusion. But to prevent history from repeating itself, the administration should also make it a priority to learn from the conflict's sad lessons. The story of U.S. involvement in the war is one of entangling partnerships, wishful thinking, and expediency. Seeking to avoid a rift with a close ally, an administration that was determined to steer clear of another war in the Middle East ended up becoming complicit in one of the region's most horrific ones. That is quite the intro, I tell you. It is quite the intro, and they really set the stage well. I do want to point out something also, that there's a difference between um, policy people and pundits. And in this intro, we see it. And a person would likely, that if that was a pundit, would say, well, Donald Trump continued to approve arms sales. Uh, sharing of intelligence for the last four years. And that's the real problem. The real problem is that Trump continued this policy of Obama. But you never hear any of that in that intro. The intro is we were serving on the National Security Council. We had a choice whether or not to get entangled in this Yemeni conflict on the side of the Saudi Arabians, and we chose our ally. And that choice has had repercussions. So these people, because they're policy people, they say, let's go back six years. When we were under Obama, we made a choice. That choice has been continued for six years, but it's not Trump's fault. It's our fault because we knew the risks, we chose to accept them, and bad things happened as a result. Now we need to reassess. That's what a policy person will do because it's not about scoring points. A policy person will say, I think we made a bad call at the time six years ago. Yeah, and I think I think the paragraph where they we were talking about Washington shared intelligence, refueled aircraft, sold weapons, provided diplomatic cover. Six years after the Saudi intervention, the war in Yemen is nothing short of a disaster. So the U.S. did help, mm -hmm. but it didn't help. So when you help and it doesn't help, you should rethink what you're doing. Yeah, we intervened, <laughs> but it didn't help. We thought it was going they to help. Yes, they intervened and it didn't help. It, it has further destabilized the Middle East, empowered Iran, and sullied the United States global reputation. The point is, uh, rethink uh, what's happening over there and what we are doing. Uh, to me, that's just simple logic. Uh, the problem is, okay, uh, what, what I keep hearing uh, from this and other articles is, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And what I want to bring to the table is stop, back up, and say, how do we think? How do we think? How do we think? How do we read what's happening? And I think when we get into these other, the rest of the article, they start talking about the decisions they made based on the information they had 
Mm-hmm. So it's not about the actions that were done. It was it was in good faith. It was how they thought about what they were doing. So when they come to the actual decision, what was their thinking to get there? Mm-hmm. So, in other words, re- rethink how you do this. In other words, uh, how do they think? <laughs> Getting back to the sons of Sequoia, talking and listening more than you talk and try to understand what the other people are saying and understand why they're saying that. And, and and understand the people you're working with. Do we understand the Saudis? We know what they've done. Do we understand them, why they did it that way? Mm-hmm. Do we understand Iran? Do we understand Yemen? Do we understand the Houthis? Do we understand why they're doing what they're doing? You know, what what is their interest? And so you can't really help uh, effectively until you really understand the people that you're helping. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, it doesn't mean you have to be there. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to, you know, uh, do the same things. But what it means is you have to really understand their thinking and why they're doing what they're doing. Now, I'm saying that, and maybe they do. I don't know. But when I read this article, that was the thing I was thinking of. Yeah. I mean, one thing that was struck about me, that struck me mostly in the first section was, We were senior policy advisors in Middle Eastern policy. Obama faced a choice. We knew it was going to be a tough choice. He made it anyway, and it hasn't panned out. And now we're six years down the line, and that choice is still in place. It's time to reassess that choice. Um, No blaming. No blaming of the other side. It's just, this is the facts. And out of all the things that Obama did that Trump reversed, um, this wasn't one of them. And... Now maybe it's up to Biden to reverse what Obama did, you know, and it's like it's not about this side, that side. It's this policy was bad. And yeah, we'll take responsibility for making a choice with we did it in good faith, like you said, but it hasn't turned out the way we wanted. So it's not about ego. It's about doing the right thing. And I think that's the fascinating difference between a pundit and a politician. I mean, a a policy person and a political person. If someone's trying to get reelected, they may behave differently than if someone's trying to do exactly what's right. So do you want to read this next section? Sure. Obama's choice. How did the United States get pulled into this wretched mess? The tale begins in 2011 with the fall of Yemen's aging, corrupt, and authoritarian president, Ali Abdullah Saleh who was forced by protest to hand over power to his vice president, Abd Rabu Mansur Hadi. Hadi was supposed to serve as a bridge between the old regime and a brighter f- future, but it didn't work out that way. A nine-month national dialogue conference delivered on aspirational, if flawed, blueprint for political reform in January 2014. But by then, the economy was near collapse and a group of rebels that had been fighting the central government for the past decade was making rapid territorial gains. These were the Houthis. Houthis. Did I say that right? I think it's Houthis. Houthis. These were the Houthis, also known as Ansar Allah, partisans of God, followers of Zayda, Zaydi, branch of Shiite Islam, who were based in the country's north near the Saudi border. In September 2014, riding a wave of anti-government anger, 
the Houthis seized control of Yemen's capital, Sinai, and eventually chased Hadi to the southern port city of Aden. Saudi Arabia feared that its neighbor would be completely taken over by Iranian surrogates. In early 2015, it rallied a coalition of nine mostly Sunni Arab states, the United, the United Arab Emirates chief among them, and prepared to launch a military intervention to restore Hadi to power and counter what it perceived as an expanding Iranian threat to the region. The decision came on the heels of a power transition in Saudi Arabia that resulted in the rise of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS who would become the face of the war in Yemen. That was the context in which the Saudis made their request for American help. U.S. officials scrambled to consolidate their views and make a rec recommendation to the president. Many had concerns about the coalition's possible heavy-handedness and were of mixed minds about whether MBS should be seen as a potential rising star or a worrying hothead, but in the end, the decision was not an especially close call. Obama's senior national security team unanimously recommended proceeding with some measure of assistance for the Saudi campaign, and the president concurred. The White House announced that he had authorized the provision of logistical and intelligence support to the coalition, and that the United States would work with its new partners to create a joint planning cell in Riyadh that would coordinate U.S. military and intelligence support. Why the Obama administration did this had much to do with Hadi. In its view, he was the legitimate leader of Yemen and a vast improvement over his much disliked predecessor. Hadi was also seen as a reliable counter-terrorist terrorism partner, someone who gave the United States wide berth in its operations against Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula which many U.S. officials rated as the most dangerous of Al-Qaeda's franchises. When the Houthis, who were vehemently anti-American, ran Hadi out of Sinai, the U.S. government saw their triumph as an affront to its interests in Yemen and to international law. For reasons that seemed to it both principled and pragmatic, Washington hoped for a restoration. That was not all. U.S. officials also sought to improve relations with the Saudis and with Washington's other Gulf partners, most notably the United Arab Emirates. For decades, the United States had viewed its partnership in the region as key to protecting its energy and security interests. And in the spring of 2015, those ties were under strain. Saudi Arabia and its Gulf allies saw the Iran nuclear deal then nearing, its then nearing completion, as giving Iran a leg up at their expense. But they were nursing other grievances too, notably about U.S. policy during the Arab Spring, particularly toward Egypt, where they thought the Obama administration had been too quick to abandon President Hosni Mubarak, and then too willing to normalize relations with the Muslim Brotherhood government that replaced him. The Gulf states also believed that the United States was withdrawing from the region, leaving them vulnerable to Islamist attacks. Thus, the watchword of U.S. policy became reassurance. This meant reinforce, reinforcing to the Saudis that Washington would stand behind a decades-old security assurance 
to defend their country against certain external threats, as well as spreading some of that feeling of steadfast support to other regional partners. When U.S. officials were planning a summit of Gulf leaders at Camp David for May 2015, they had one major deliverable in mind, a communique affirming the United States' readiness to come to their country's aid in the event of external aggression. Now, the Saudis felt threatened by an Iran-backed militia on their southern border. Giving them a flat no, giving them a flat no would have been a been off message to say the least. Another reason U.S. officials decided to support the Saudi-led coalition in 2015 was that they thought Washington could act as a moderating influence. The support that Obama authorized came with limits, caveats, and safety features. Obama's guidance was that America help would serve the purpose of protecting Saudi Arabia's territorial integrity, making the assistance essentially defensive in nature. The administration also hoped that the joint planning cell would act as a forum where American advisors could professionalize their Saudi counterparts, learn what they were doing, and when necessary, rein them in. That's, that's the next section. So it sounds like, you know, like I said, he had a choice to make. He made it, and it just didn't pan out. So that was sort of table setting, right? There's not really much to talk about. Those guys were in the room. That was how the decision was made. And that's that's very interesting, factual and informational. But it doesn't make us look like the bad guys, right? No, we, 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 we tried. Mm -hmm. uh, we looked at this, we looked at that, we looked at the issues over there. And notice uh, a lot of what the decision that's being made, what they're talking about, like the watchword of the U.S. was reassurance. Uh, a lot of it is like, how do, how do we fit into this picture? Yes. Well, we just inked uh, Iranian nuclear deal, but the Saudis are our traditional allies in the United Arab, the Emiratis, in the United Arab Emirates, um, the Emirates. And they're saying, are you turning your back on us? Because look what happened. In Egypt, there's a popular uprising in Tahrir Square in Cairo, and all of a sudden you don't support the president anymore. Is that going to happen to us if there's a popular uprising in Saudi Arabia? Or if Iran sort of fuels, you know, dissent here? Are you going to turn your backs on us? And so reassurance because of those long-held alliances was sort of necessary. I think that also that section says, I forget the guy's name, Hadi, the vice president that came to power after... Hadi, uh-huh. Um, he was a legitimate leader in, in the United States' eyes. And all Saudi Arabia wanted to do was stop the Houthis and make sure that the legitimate leader retained power. There was a lot of reasons to say yes that will help, will provide assistance. I think one thing we didn't count on is MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, is a bit of a wild card. And that's, that's difficult. It's difficult when you're dealing with people and human frailty and... Um, uncertainties of how someone will behave and act to to see that stuff in advance. And I, I could be wrong, but I keep I, I keep going back to uh, America, United States and our country. Uh, we are a rule of law. And if someone says, I'm doing this, you can't do that. It's against the law. Oh, OK, then I won't do it. You know, I'm doing this. You can't do that against the law. I'm doing it anyway. Okay, well, then there's penalties. So it's all about a rule of law. I'm not sure they think that way over there. Mm -hmm. 
That's not how they think. So when we pin an agreement to us, that's a binding agreement. To them, it's ink on a paper. And it will be binding as long as they get something from it. But no, as long as they don't, it's going to change. Whether it's right or wrong, I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just saying they think differently than we do. Like you're, uh, talking, you're, talking, about, you're talking about Mohammed bin Salman, a Saudi prince who's grown up in luxury, who by all accounts since this time, I mean, I think that you're talking about Middle East leadership, especially if they're descended from a line of princes and, you know, kings. When you say they, it's, it's it's on the person. It's about the person, not the rule of law. Yeah, you could you can have a, a crown prince come in, and they want to change the country. It will change. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not about rule of law. It's about the rule of law from the person in charge, whoever that is, wh whatever country you're in, and uh, that's just how their system works. And I think we have to understand that. Uh, I'm not saying I'm not saying we don't. I'm just saying I just keep saying that. Uh, the the clash uh, between uh, the the United States rule of law and the Saudi Arabia rule of uh, a uh, a head head of government mm -hmm. or a family of government you yeah know? and also if you're going to deal with someone uh, like like uh, Yemen or Hadi or or uh, MBS Ben Salman Ben Salman uh, or even uh, Iran or Iraq or whatever. Uh, whoever you deal with, uh, you deal with them personally. Uh, you don't necessarily say, "If we do this, well, then they will do this," because they are rule of law. They're not a rule. They're they are rule of law, but their rule of law is ba has basis different basis. Maybe I'm going too much on this, but I can't help but think that from from my experience, uh, from just looking at this over over the so many years, and I think the people who are in charge, you know, like like. Uh, the uh, advisors, they they see this and they understand this, but I don't think the American people do. No, I mean, but I think also what you're saying, I mean, it's like we have to understand how Middle Eastern people think. And it's like, um, well, are you talking about the Jews or the Sunni Arabs or the Shiite Arabs? You know, or, you know, like there's a it's sort of like saying. If you want to make a deal with America, you have to understand how Americas think. And it's like, well, Americas have different opinions about different topics. I think that perhaps more accurately, it's Crown Prince Abdullah, who ruled Saudi Arabia forever. I think he was more of a known entity. When we got into this civil war in Yemen, like they said, it was on the backs of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman sort of taking over the reins. Well, in that system, the institutions don't play as much of a role as the individual. And we didn't understand the mercurial nature of Mohammed bin Salman's decision-making. Whereas if we would have negotiated certain deals with the previous de facto ruler, things might have gone differently. We didn't realize that there's a new set of rules with a new ruler who's not quite as uh, rock solid as previous rulers that we've negotiated with. I think that was well said, David. Yeah. And so therefore, when you have a new ruler... Uh, and you deal with them the same as the old ruler, you're not going to have the same results. Mm -hmm. You know, and like like if we have a, a in the United States, we have executive order, then that executive executive order, regardless which president it came under, will have this will have the effect of an executive executive order. Mm -hmm. Right. 
I don't think that's true in, in other countries. I don't think that's true at all. And I think, like Hadi, Hadi, uh, you know, he, he was uh, the adversary of uh, Saudi Arabia. Why does he, why is he doing what he's doing? What is he thinking? What what's his motivation? And and uh, even Iran. No, Hadi Hadi was the de facto ruler. He was the one we were offering support to Saudi Arabia to protect. Oh, was it the other way around? Yeah, the Houthis were the de, fa- the de facto bad guys. Should we continue? Right. Yeah, let's let's continue. So we thought we could control the Saudis. We could rein them in with our assistance. That obviously didn't happen in this next section will tell us why. Reigning in the Saudis, as soon becomes apparent and has since become incontrovertible, the United States greatly underestimated the challenge it would face in curbing Saudi operations and minimizing both humanitarian damage and civilian casualties. The coalition resorted to brass knuckle tactics early on. First, it prevented imports from entering Houthi-held areas, strangling the flow of commodities into the country's largest and most important port, Hodeidah. Then, it bombed critical infrastructure such as container cranes, the food production facilities, strikes hit residential neighborhoods and weddings. In several instances, the U.S. officials worried that the coalition was acting intentionally, perhaps perceiving these strikes to have a tactical benefit. The U.S. response was to try to fix the problem. American diplomats backed an import verification regime to help persuade Saudi Arabia to ease its restrictions on goods going into the country, but the flow of goods grew only slightly, and Yemenis struggled with increasing hardship. To reduce civilian casualties from the bombing campaign, U.S. officials developed no-strike lists for Saudi pilots, but there was a giant loophole. The list applied to only pre-planned strikes, not to ones decided while a pilot was in the air. As for the joint planning cell in Riyadh, the personnel that the Pentagon assigned to it tended to specialize in logistics and intelligence, not in techniques for avoiding civilian harm during airstrikes. On top of that, most, if not all of them, were seated away from the operations floor where targeting decisions were made, and they were either on a separate floor or in a separate building. The State Department eventually sent its own expert to work with the cell, but after a spike in civilian casualties in August 2016, it reversed its decision, worried that the advisor's presence would give an American imprimatur to irresponsible targeting practices. Amid this blur of effort to contain a worsening humanitarian disaster, what the United States did not do was walk away. American planes continued to refuel Saudi jets on their way to bomb Yemeni targets without necessarily knowing what those targets were. Washington provided intelligence, shipped weapons, and sent contractors to help keep the Saudi Air Force flying. It did all of this in part out of deference to the same interests that had led to its involvement in the conflict in the first place. And in part because it continued to believe that its position at the coalition's side allowed it to do some good, steering the coalition away from even worse decisions than it was already making and coaxing it to the negotiating table. In its last six months, the Obama administration took a number of steps that several former officials later said they wished it had taken earlier. In August 2016, Secretary of State John Kerry pushed peacemaking efforts into high gear by moving away from the unrealistic framework that had guided earlier diplomatic pushes. A 2015 UN Security Council resolution had insisted that the Houthis hand over their heavy weapons and allow Hadi's government to return to Sana'a to to rule. Kerry offered the Houthis and their allies a role in a power-sharing arrangement in return for handing over weapons in the territory. 
After an October 2016 airstrike on a funeral hall in Sanaa killed 155 people, the Obama administration also rethought its approach to arms sales to the Saudis. In December, it announced that it was halting a planned sale of precision-guided munitions. It was too little too late. For several months before this decision, as the U.S. presidential election loomed, it had become harder for U.S. diplomats to motivate the Saudis to focus on the peace plan. When Donald Trump won, it became impossible. The Saudis suspected that the administration waiting in the wings would be both more supportive of its anti-Iranian agenda and more willing to look the other way on civilian casualties. The suspension of weapon sales for its part, barely stung. The Saudis correctly predicted that the Trump administration would reverse it. By the time the Obama administration started to toughen its approach somewhat, it was time to pass the torch to the successor. The worst was yet to come. So it shows wow. that the, the decisions you make while you have power are important, but also when you're waning in time, when you're, you have a couple years left, a couple months left, you're not really going to reverse anything. And so it's important to make the right decisions at the right time, or a disaster could be the result. Yeah, timing is just as important as a decision you're making. Because mm-hmm. you get momentum over there, or anywhere. You get a momentum going, and it's hard to change the momentum. And also, in this case, disaster. Uh, when you have disaster, you can't go back and undo that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that disaster has already happened. Yeah, it's fascinating that they would make changes and they weren't even in the, they weren't even in the room. Yeah. And it says, oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll do that. We'll do that. We'll do it over here, but not over here. <laughs> so actually, actually, it's kind of like the rule of the law. I mean, the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. Mm-hmm. No, we're doing this because we don't want to strike. Yeah, we're doing this. But they will strike over here. Yeah. Uh, and so it's kind of like uh, kind of like. Uh, an illusion, like a, a magic person. Look over here, look over here. But the point is, um, they have their interests, and uh, they, uh, I, I think also on the other side of the coin, you have to be careful over there. If if you let up a little bit, uh, people are going to rush in and take over. And, uh, and so it, it's hard to protect what you have. And... Uh, it's it's a complicated situation over there. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, there's a huge arms sale. I'm sure it'll be discussed in the next section. But this was, I remember listening to the news. This was a big political to-do. Um, when that American resident, that was a journalist for the Washington Post, Jamal Khashoggi, when Mohammed bin Salman, the pr- crown prince, had him cut into a million pieces, and... Uh, killed, when he had him killed, murdered, in cold blood, the U.S. Congress said, we're not going to approve any more arms sales to Saudi Arabia. And then the coronavirus hit, and Bush said, oh, I'm declaring a national emergency, the coronavirus. And there's, in the law, when you declare a national emergency, you can take security procedures that aren't approved by Congress. So he used the coronavirus to sell think a quarter of a billion dollars worth of arms to Saudi Arabia so they could continue this conflict. And I remember people were upset about that, but that barely ticked the radar. That didn't piss people off. You know, the the porn star and the, I, the you do something for me or you're going to have a hard time, Ukraine. Like that was upsetting. But I think the, the, the fact of the matter is, yeah, a journalist got killed 
And so I couldn't sell you guns, but then I'm going to use this coronavirus as a, an excuse to sell you guns. That should have been outrageous as well. I think that so much outrageous stuff happened that it was difficult to maintain the outrage about one specific thing. Yeah, it's fascinating where, again, it's, it's like a magic act where illusionist uh, misplaced attention where if you want to do something that's controversial, then you raise an issue over here and take people's attention away from it. How? Let the media move over mm -hmm. to that to over there and not really look at the real issues. It's like $1.9 trillion in relief to small businesses and individuals. But what about Dr. Seuss? Yeah. Um, we don't want to, we don't, we don't, we don't want them focusing on those checks they're getting or the payroll protection or the fact that, you know, workers may have extended unemployment benefits in a very hard time. Think about Dr. Seuss. That's what you should be paying attention to. Mm -hmm. Uh, shall we continue? A blank check is the next section. <clears throat> you ready? I'm ready. Okay. <clears throat> A blank check. The Trump administration saw the Middle East through very different eyes. It shared the Saudis' fixation on Iran, and Trump himself displayed a particular affinity for, for strongmen in the mold of MBS. Although some senior U.S. officials, such as De Secretary of Defense James Mattis, had little appetite for the conflict in Yemen, seeing no feasible military solution, the new administration's priorities were, were clear, and they did not include peacemaking. The Trump team cared much more about making Saudi Arabia an even bigger purchaser of American weapons and a partner in a notional Israeli-Palestinian peace deal in, and turning Yemen into a front in its maximum pressure campaign against Iran. Under Trump, the U.S. approach to the war in Yemen zigged and zagged. At first, attention to the peace process withered as it was left in the hands of sub-cabinet officials, while operational support for the military campaign grew. The United States opened the taps on sharing intelligence that enabled strikes on, on Houthi targets. And in June 2017, the Trump administration unlocked the delivery of arms that the Obama administration had suspended. Trump's team also sent mixed signals about whether it might approve of a renewed attack on the port of Hodeida, this time by land rather than sea, something that the prior administration had said was categorically unacceptable. In a particularly jarring act, in a particularly jarring act, uh, in September 2018, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo formally notified Congress that the coalition was doing enough to protect civilians a prerequisite for continuing refueling operations mere weeks after an errant Saudi strike hit a school bus and killed 40 children. U.S. policy took another turn after the Saudis murdered the Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi at their consulate in Istanbul in October 2018. With Congress outraged, the Trump administration pushed for renewed, renewed peace talks between the Hadi government and the Houthis. Thanks in part to personal outreach by Mattis, the members of the coalition in December 2018, negotiations took place outside Stockholm under the auspices of the UN. These talks resulted 
in a ceasefire around Hodeidah and created what might have been a foundation for a broader effort to reach peace. But later that month, Mattis stepped down and U.S. attention to the peace process once again waned. As time passed, the confluence of an escalating conflict in Yemen and intensifying U.S. pressure on Iran turned the war into an increasingly central arena in a regional power struggle. On one side were the United States and its regional partners, and on the other were Iran and its allies. How much the Houthis depend on Iranian support and to what extent their actions reflect Iranian desires have been matters of intense debate. But two things seem clear. First, that Iran saw the conflict from the start as a low-cost, high-reward opportunity to bog down and bleed its Saudi rival. And second, that as the war was that as the war has persisted, ties between the rebels and Tehran have deepened, with the Houthis becoming progressively more willing to turn to Iran for succor, whether in the form of training or material. Uh, assistance. Thanks in part to the support, the Houthis upped their drone and missile attacks against Saudi territory. Iran itself seemed to jump into the fray. In September 2019, a complex drone attack was carried out against oil facilities in eastern Saudi Arabia. Although the Houthis claimed responsibility, the sophistication of the strikes and the flight paths of the drones suggested an Iranian hand. In part, the attack was Iran's way of responding to Washington's maximum pressure campaign and discouraging Gulf countries from participating in it. The war in Yemen has given Iran both the motivation and the opportunity to flex its muscles, and it has obliged. Over the course of 2020, Saudi Arabia recognized that the quick war it envisaged, envisaged, envisaged had turned into a long slog coming at a heavy cost, both materially and reputationally. MBS has, has been keen to repair his seriously damaged standing in Washington, which has suffered as a result of the uh, Kosogi murder and the brutal campaign in Yemen. In the wake of the drone attack on its oil facilities, Saudi Arabia revitalized talks with the Houthis and Riyadh, has worked hard hmm, Saudi Arabia revitalized talks with the Houthis, and Riyadh has worked hard to bring the fissiparious anti-Houthi bloc under single umbrella. But ending the war has proved far more difficult than launching it. As of January 2021, the Houthis had consolidated their control over northwestern Yemen, with 70 to 80 percent of the country's people falling under their rule, and with threatening the government stronghold of Marib, near the northeastern corner of their zone of control. The rest of the country is a political patchwork, variously dominated by government forces, sundry militias, uh, militias and local authorities. So it didn't turn out. Oh. You're on mute. So it didn't turn out the way they thought it would. And that's no, the surprising thing. Um, when you look at Iranian motivation for helping the Houthis, and then you look at these drone strikes, they come from Iran, they blow up Saudi oil fields. And why do you think the Houthis claim credit? Because the Iranians are the only people giving them any material support. 
So the Iranians have sort of cover, even though it appears as if the drones were launched from Iran and attacked Saudi Arabia directly. Iran says, we didn't have anything to do with it. It was the Houthis. Um, And the Houthis will say that it was them because Iran is the only person in their corner giving them material support. Uh, The fascinating thing to me is that if we're giving intelligence and material support to the Saudi Arabians, and they have a huge advantage in military capability, why, after six years, do the Houthis control 70 to 80% of the territory, or 70 to 80% of the people? Is it a testament to... You know, you say the United States goes into Iraq and we don't really understand, uh, you know, what it takes to control territory in the Middle East. So we have trouble and we sort of gradually pull our troops back from Iraq because because we don't understand. But if anyone should understand Arabia, it's the Saudi Arabians. And it seems like they don't understand either. I mean, so maybe it isn't a fundamental gulf of understanding. Maybe it's. Or, you know, maybe it's the type of people, they don't submit to be conquered by a, a foreign force. I mean, and they never will, and they'll continue to fight, and that's just the sort of di- the dynamic there. Well, along those lines, uh, they keep saying, we give them intelligence. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe they don't need our intelligence. <laughs> maybe we need to listen to their intelligence. <laughs> On, on what's going to work over there and what's not going to work. And maybe they don't know. Because Saudi, we, we, we support Saudi and what they're doing, but it doesn't seem like it's working. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not working. No, it's not working. It's not Obviously, working. If, Obviously. The, if the Houthis, after six years of animosity from the government, the Hadi government, the Saudi Arabians on to their north with the assistance of the U.S., can still be in control of 70 to 80 percent of the country's people. I don't think the war was successful because all that happened was a bunch of civilians got killed and a bunch of people starved. It's not like the Saudis were able to restore Hadi to, uh, to rule. It's not like he's the legitimate ruler of all of Yemen and there's just some pockets of insurrection. It seems like 80 percent of the country is insurrection, you know? So... well. This this may be a tangent, and it is a tangent, but it's logic in this area. Let's to me, I'll, I'll separate out a little bit from the actual details here and look at the bigger picture. Uh, you, you know, uh, I teach I teach analytics, right? Mm-hmm. And so in business, and uh, I make a point uh, from time to time saying, look, this company is having trouble over here with their inventory. Uh, and this inventory is a problem. Let's come in and solve that inventory. Okay, let's do build it up. Let's bring it down. Let's do this, do this. So there's all different things you could do, but their, their inventory is a problem. But if you back up and look at the bigger picture, the inventory is the symptom. It's not the cause. The real cause is over here in your forecasting department. They don't know what they need. Mm-hmm. And so they're reacting to something rather than being proactive to solve the problem. The problem is solved over here. They see the problem over here. You don't solve the problem where you see it. You solve the problem where the cause is. Yeah. And I that, that concept, uh, at least from where I'm at, I keep looking at this and say, well, maybe 
when we give help to the Saudis, say, we need this help, that's a short-term fix. And yeah, they did. But is that really solving the problem? Or is it escalating the problem? Yeah. To make it worse. And I don't know if that's true or not. Again, I'm just I'm just throwing it out there. It's like an alcoholic who drinks their whole life and their liver gets shot and their eyes and their face are yellow. And so you take a look and you say, Wow, your eyes and your face are yellow. Let's fix this. And you go to Ulta and you buy them a bunch of makeup. And you say, put or, this makeup on your face, and uh, you know, and then your then your then your skin won't be yellow anymore. And it's like, but the real problem is that your liver is shot. You know what I mean? You're it's a misattribution. So you're putting lipstick on a pig, I guess, is what you're saying. Well, that's one thing. The other thing with that analogy, David, is you talk to the to the alcoholic, and they say, you know, I haven't had a drink in in a day or in in, in two or three days. I'm feeling horrible. I'm gonna. I, I'm. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. Well, how can we solve that? I need a drink. Give me a bottle. Because mm-hmm. if you're asking the person who has the problem, they're gonna solve it short term. Now, if he has a bottle, he has a drink. Is he gonna feel better? Yes. Does it solve the problem? Well, it solves him feeling better. It solves a problem. <laughs> It sells, but it doesn't solve his alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're doing over here. I'm not saying that. I'll take that statement back. Uh, we should think of that approach when we start looking at the Middle East, you know. Uh, and the alcohol is a bad analogy because they don't drink I, in the Middle I, East. I <laughs> no, no, no. I, I don't. I don't see. I'll probably get. I don't know how many people listening to this. And I'm sure people will will blast me for this, but I don't see their culture. I don't not the culture. How can I say this? They have their system. I think that Let when you this right. when you criticize respect, respect other people's systems, respect them yes, for what they do and where they are. But you we're can not also, there. But you can also say the leadership um, does not. You know, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi or the how they've managed the war in Yemen, that is not, I don't think, a function of culture. That's a function of leadership. Uh, I've seen uh, television shows like Anthony Bourdain. He goes to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. And he's like, this place is insane. Everyone is so nice. Their level of hospitality is, and that is the culture. The culture is not, yes. let's run a brutal war. Because when Crown Prince Abdullah was running Saudi Arabia, they didn't run a brutal war against the Houthis. They didn't chop up journalists. So I think that it's, when, when a country is perpetrating acts that seem that uh, inhumane, I don't think, that, I think it's difficult. You have to take a step back and say, is that really a function of the culture? Or is that a function of the leadership? Is the leadership permitting I, I that? Yeah, that that's why that's why I pull back culture. I don't want mm-hmm. to say culture. That's people. I'm just saying rethink the situation. Yeah. Uh, and you know what went through my mind, David, uh, is that oh yeah, American says they're terrible because they because they did that to that to that journalist, right? Mm-hmm. They killed him. Well, Andrew Jackson. Killed Indians. Mm-hmm. And now he's our president. Now he's revered as a president. He's our $20 bill. Okay, well, look at our past. We haven't been squeaky clean. 
No, I mean... We've done it, a lot of things, too. And I think it's, it's difficult to say, you know, oh, their culture is dominated by violence, where no one got... Ten people didn't get shot at a King Supers in Riyadh last week, but they did right. 20 miles from our house. So, in Boulder. They so, did in Boulder. So which, which culture is more violent, you know? Be careful <laughs> judging people. Uh, that's that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Be careful judging. Try to try to listen to what they're saying and understand what they mean, and try to understand other people. And let's together move uh, to a to a better uh, better civilization. That, yeah. Uh, that that's that's what I'm saying. That again, there don't when you look at the past, don't look at the past to blame people. Look at the past to learn. So the future can be better. Yeah. And focus on the solutions for the future. And the solution to the future is not blaming people. The solution for the future is not division. Is not saying, oh, the Democrats are bad or the Republicans are bad. That's not that's not future good. That's that's bad for the future and it's bad for our country. And I, we need to get people in Washington. Okay, we're getting off the track here. Well, I mean, I think we're getting yes, on we're the. Get, we're, I getting agree, we're getting we're getting on the track. This is I think the experts' yeah. per, uh, prescription for the future. It's the case for caring. Now, I mean, case we we can prognosticate what they need to do, but this is what the experts have to say about what needs to happen next. The case yes, for caring. We, well, we're we're talking in general. Mm-hmm. Now, the case for caring. Let's see what they have to say. Yes. Well, I think that, um, yeah, let's go for it. The case for caring. Joe Biden has signaled that the issues he will focus on as U.S. president will be those with tangible domestic impacts. Climate change, the pandemic, China. Why, given his overflowing plate, should he even care about solving the crisis in Yemen? Three reasons stand out. First is the United States' responsibility and what has unfolded. Saudi Arabia has almost certainly wouldn't have, let me go back. Saudi Arabia almost certainly would have intervened in Yemen if the Obama administration had rejected its call for help, and it may well have prosecuted its campaign with even less regard for the laws of war, absent the United States' defective supervision. But without U.S. support, Saudi Arabia would have found it harder to wage war and arguably would have been more eager to find a way out. Washington has a responsibility to help clean up the mess it helped create. Second is the sheer magnitude of Yemen's humanitarian crisis. According to U.N. statistics, as of mid-2020, some 24 million Yemenis, 80% of the country's population, needed some form of assistance. Roughly 20 million were teetering on the brink of starvation. In November 2020, the U.N. Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, warned that Yemen was now in imminent danger of the worst famine the world has seen for decades. The conflict is not alone to blame. Yemen was the region's poorest country even before the conflict began. But the collapse of the economy and the loss of access to or the closure of airports and seaports, all byproducts of the war, are primarily responsible. Third is the potential for regional spillover. As long as the conflict endures, so does the risk that it could provoke a direct confrontation between Iran and Saudi Arabia. As a candidate, Biden committed to steering the United States away from adventurism in the Middle East. But such commitments can be difficult to keep at moments of crisis. Should conflicts between Iran and Saudi Arabia begin to escalate on the Arabian Peninsula, the Biden administration could come under enormous pressure to get involved, despite its better judgment. That risk alone should be reason enough for Biden at the beginning of his administration administration to both disentangle the United States from the conflict in Yemen and seek to end it. There's one big problem with this plan, however. It may not work. (laughs) 
very short very section, good. but yeah. So they advocate for disengagement, but also ending the actual conflict, which is tough. Yeah. It's it's saying, you know what we need to do? We need to wash our hands of the whole affair, but also end it. <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay, yeah. Um, and I, uh, that's that's yeah. How can you argue with that? <laughs> but then, how can you do that? <laughs> Heaven, that isn't that what they've been trying to do in the mm-hmm. past ten years, past twenty, thirty years? Uh, you know, it's just gotten worse. Uh, so what do you? So yeah, but what do you do? So should we continue? Because that was very much just like table setting for this next part. Do you want to read? Okay, giving peace a chance. Uh, Biden faces a conundrum in Yemen. Senior members of his team, including Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, signed a letter in 2018, which we also signed, acknowledging the failure of the Obama administration's Yemen policy. As a candidate, Biden himself pledged to, quote, end U.S. support for the disastrous Saudi-led war in Yemen and order a reassessment of our relationship with Saudi Arabia, end quote. He has also vowed to rejoin the nuclear deal with Iran. These moves will inevitably raise tensions with Saudi Arabia. Yet the Biden administration is also committed to ending the war in Yemen and negotiating a follow-on deal with Iran on regional issues. Steps that, steps that by definition, will require working closely with Riyadh. Further complicating matters, the administration will have to somehow make sure that the Houthis, who are likely to feel as buoyed uh, by any uh, reduction in U.S. backing for the war effort as Saudi Arabia will feel forsaken, nonetheless come under enough pressure to agree to a peace deal. Deft diplomatic juggling will be needed for the United States to do several things at once. Step back from the war while helping end it, squeeze Saudi Arabia but not overly alienate it, and engage directly with the Houthis without excessively emboldening them. Any U.S. official trying to navigate this terrain might construct the following roadmap. First, Biden would reverse the Trump administration's last-minute decision to designate the Houthis a terrorist, terrorist organization. Far from creating leverage over the Houthis, as Trump officials maintained, that move triggered sanctions that could have that could have catastrophic humanitarian implications and severely complicate diplomatic efforts. Second, he would announce a halt to U.S. military assistance to the Saudi war effort to avoid estranging estranging Riyadh to the point where it refuses to cooperate. Washington would also reiterate its commitment to help the kingdom and its partners defend their territorial integrity, while making clear that this promise applies only to threats of a certain magnitude. In Sullivan's words, the goal should be, quote, to balance anxiety with reassurance, end quote. The administration might also make clear that the direction of bilateral relations would depend in large part on whether the Saudis worked with it to come up with a practical way to end the war. In parallel, Washington would intensify its support for the UN-led peace process and perhaps name a U.S. special envoy to Yemen to that end. Finally, on the margins of discussions with Iran over a mutual return to the nuclear deal, the administration would press Tehran to convince the Houthis to cease hostilities 
and show flexibility in peace talks, not as a condition for rejoining the deal, but as a step that would lower regional tensions and build trust. Among the items on the new administration's Middle East to-do list, Yemen is one of those that may be ripest for progress, although that is not the same thing as saying that the effort will succeed. One likely problem involves calibrating how much reassurance, reassurance, reassurance Washington should extend to Saudi Arabia and its partners. History suggests that the very concept of reassurance invites trouble. After all, that was the rationale that led the Obama administration to support the Saudis' campaign in the first place. As much as the Biden administration should try to make clear what it is and isn't willing to do with a shooting war underway, that exercise is sure to be fraught. That is largely because it will be challenging to figure out which element of U.S. support for the Saudi-led campaign to continue and which to halt. What constitutes defense and what offense? On what side of the line does interdicting arms shipments to the Houthis fall? What about sharing intelligence that the Saudis could use to target Houthi missile launch sites or helping the Saudis maintain their aircraft? The Houthis have crossed the border into Saudi Arabia and control territory there. When Washington provides intelligence or weapons to counter the Houthis, is it fulfilling its commitment to defend Saudi Arabia's territorial integrity or merely entangling itself further in the war in Yemen? Deciding to end support for the war in Yemen doesn't answer these questions. It is just another way of posing them. It is sobering to remember that Obama also sought to draw such distinctions, yet ended up getting sucked into a broader fight anyway. But the Biden team, at least, has the benefit of seeing what it did, what did not work for the Obama administration, and again, prepare itself to be far more restrained about the circumstances in which it is prepared to lend assistance. Moreover, however much the Saudis may cooperate on the peace process, at this late date, it may prove insufficient. Obstacles to peace abound. The Houthis will have to accept that given the resistance of large portions of the Yemen population, a viable deal will not simply convert territorial realities into international recognition of their rule. But having been ascendant for the past two years, they are unlikely to show interest in compromise. Hadi will have to accept that his demands for a return to power in Sinai through a Houthi surrender are wholly unrealistic. But the embattled president has proven remarkably stubborn and he is likely to see the formation of a new government as a sign that the tide is finally turning in his favor. The United States and Iran, for their part, may find themselves struggling to come to an accommodation on Yemen, even if they reach agreement on a nuclear deal. Although the end of the maximum pressure campaign should diminish Iran's uh, incentive to act aggressively in the Gulf, it may not be reason enough for the country to seriously pressure the Houthis to compromise, something it may not even be able to do anyway. A final obstacle. Yemen is no longer the country it was when the war began. As the conflict has ground on, power has become diffused across a multitude of armed actors on the ground, not just the Houthis and the Hadi government, but also separatist forces in the south and militias under the authority of 
uh, Tariq Saleh, a nephew of Hadi's predecessor. The war now rages on multiple fronts, each with its own political dynamics and lines of command and control. Absent the buy-in of all these actors, a peace settlement is like unlikely to be sustainable. And getting their buy-in will be difficult. Many other groups in Yemen have developed economic incentives to prolong the conflict. Further complicating matters, multiple regional players have taken an interest in backing different groups on the ground. The Biden administration should not allow these considerations to dissuade it from making a major push for peace in Yemen. The stakes are too high not to try. But the administration should also bear in mind that whatever it does, it will have to be firm with Saudi Arabia about its decision to pull the United States back from most activities relating to the war, however difficult that may be. Ending the war may prove to be beyond the new administration's influence. Ending U.S. complicity in it is not. All right. So, wow. I mean, lots of lots of suggestions. And I think that the editor's note said that many of those suggestions were adopted almost immediately by the Biden administration, because um, I'm sure that whoever he has advising him on policy is of a similar mind to these two gentlemen writing this article. Exactly. That's, uh, that's it. I think you're I think you hit the nail on the head, David. Mm hmm. So there's a lot of, I mean, it's a tightrope act, though. We do need the support of our traditional ally, Saudi Arabia, the largest military. I mean, people think of Israel as having the largest military, but I think in terms of raw dollars spent, uh, Saudi Arabia is the largest military in the Middle East. And we don't want to piss them off. But that doesn't mean we need to help them, you know, uh, continue this war that we don't agree with on uh, many fundamental levels. It's it's a difficult balancing act. And then, of course, at the time that we sort of offer less help than we traditionally have, we're also reaching out, making overtures to Iran, their sworn enemy, to sort of come back into compliance with the nuclear arms agreement. And they say, okay, so you're cozying up to our enemy, and you're not helping us with this war that you've been helping us with the last six years. What's the deal here? I mean, it's fascinating just to sort of think of it from that perspective. Uh, and they could say, okay, well, you can re-enter the Iran nuclear deal if you continue your support for the Houthi war or whatever. I mean, there's a negotiation that's going to go on beyond the scenes. Um, and I'm sure that Saudi Arabia would actually prefer more pressure on Iran than to continue their pressure in Yemen. Because Iran strategically thought, Saudi Arabia gets bogged down in Yemen, it'll be a huge glut to their resources. And it, like, like it said in the article, cost-benefit for Iran. There's motivated militia forces on the ground in a huge part of Yemen that are willing to fight to the death. And that is worth its weight in gold in terms of Iran sort of being able to milk Saudi Arabia for its you know, military might because they don't have to do it themselves. So they're working by proxy. Um, so there's a lot of moving pieces. I think a lot of these suggestions are well taken. And I think that trying to disentangle ourselves from helping the side that is in many ways responsible for the famine and that's hitting civilian targets. And I think that 
if you were on the ground and you were a Hadi supporter or you were a Saudi, you would say, these Houthis, they're not exactly Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King. You know, the Houthis are perpetrating a lot of violence against pro-government forces as well. That's, that's what happens in a war. It's not the good guys versus the bad guys. So I, it's difficult for me to understand still, even after reading this, although I know who the players are and who, whose interests are being represented by whom, I don't know if any of these suggestions are the right way to go because I don't understand this stuff enough. But I'll trust that these guys have these ideas about how to go forward and that they're not just shooting from the hip. And I think that was one thing I was worried about with foreign policy in the Trump administration is that a lot of it was, if it wasn't directed by Mattis or it wasn't directed by, you know, some of the, quote, adults in the room, end quote, that it was shooting from the hip. And that, that has caused a lot of a lot of uh, problems because over there, it's, it seems to me, it strikes me that you have all these different elements, okay? And they are there. They are in the room, so to say, in the Middle East. Uh, they have their own interests. And so they are players in, the, in this arena. Well, the United States, uh, we are not in the room, but we are a player because mm -hmm. we're in a different continent. Okay, but we are a player. So how do you how do you frame a player in the game when you're not in the room? And so uh, you have to forge a, and establish. Well, you can have your perspective of how you're playing this game when you're not in the room. Our interests are interests of people in the room. You know what I mean by in the room, right? Yeah, like it's their territory. It's their backyard. It's their territory. It's their, it's their home. Mm -hmm. What if it was our home? We're going to have a whole different view than 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 someone in, uh, over there coming over here saying, well, you should do this, you should do that. You should be peaceful. This is, wait a minute now. Well, yeah, what if no. te Texas secedes from the Union? And then... Are we going to say, okay, well, China and Russia are telling us to do this to Texas? Exactly. Sh should should we just trust what they say as the gospel truth? Yeah, absolutely. That that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So what what I'm getting at is a different perspective. And of course, I this probably is more academic than realistic. But I don't know. You have to start somewhere. Uh, you have to start. At least my thinking is, we're not a player in the room. That's what I mean by understand. Their their emotion that they're not going to give up because that's their home. Where mm -hmm. else are they going to go? Okay, but you are a player in the game, but you're not in the room. So understand those players are in the room. They're defending their home. Well, so what do you do? So then, how? What is your part in that? You don't support one side against the other. Somehow we have to be a player that's going to move toward peace and not come down on one side or the other. That's mm -hmm. what I'm getting at. Um, so I like the statistics from the last section, 70 to 80% of the population still supports the Houthis. Or some, it was, a, I could find it. Why, why don't I find it? I have it here. So. It's from the last section. Um, yeah, I were talking about. 80% of the country's population, wait, I don't know. Well, you know what I'm talking about. They're, they still yeah. control a vast, yeah, a vast majority of... That's because I think those people see when the bombs hit a civilian target, the Houthis don't have uh, bomber planes. When a, when a wedding gets bombed, 
Well, you know, these Houthis, the only reason I support them is because a Houthi never bombed my wedding. The only reason I support them is because the forces that are stopping the flow of grain uh, and dairy from getting to my town and that are starving us to death aren't Houthi forces. So it's easy to sort of be like, oh, I support the Houthis because they're not the ones starving me or bombing my weddings. Um, Or killing my kids in a school bus. But that doesn't mean that, you know, uh, Houthi-led Yemen would be the appropriate (laughs) solution. I think that means Saudi Arabia should knock it off and they should come to some power-sharing agreement. But that's easier said than done. They've already invested a lot in this war. If they could vanquish the Houthi rebellion and sort of install the Hadi government, a pro-Saudi Arabian government, as a sort of uh, banana republic on their southern border, that would probably be the outcome that the Saudis want. Right. Um, and there's just they're beginning to learn that the vouchsafing the security of that agreement may be more than they bargained for. So it's, it's a fascinating power dynamic there. And the sad thing is that because the power dynamic is locked... Uh, or complicated, the people that really end up holding the bag are the civilians. And that's sad. And the children. Yeah. Um, Finishing off the article, I'll read. Preventing future Yemens. The intractability of the war in Yemen should serve as a stark reminder of the costs of entering such conflicts to begin with. It should also, then, compel the Biden administration to come to grips with the crucial question, how can the United States avoid becoming complicit in similar disasters? A good place to start would be with the fundamentals of U.S. security partnerships in the Gulf. Washington has given far-reaching assurances that it will come to the defense of Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states, and has arranged to place in their hands a large arsenal of American weapons, sustained by American parts and personnel. Because of the way in which these partnerships are structured, when one of these states chooses to launch an unwise war, especially when there is a defensive rationale, the United States will face a hard choice. Should it join the effort to demonstrate fealty to its assurances and try to influence how its weapons are used? Should it refuse to participate but continue to allow arms and assistance to flow? Or should it cut off support and risk rupturing relations with a regional partner, recognizing that other would-be weapon suppliers, such as China, Russia, or Turkey, might well step in? The soul-searching should extend beyond the executive branch. Congress has a role to play in preventing future Yemens, and indeed, it appears to recognize as much. In 2019... David, you skipped a paragraph. These are the sorts of questions that ought to be examined in the reassessment of U.S.-Saudi relations that Biden has promised. At the heart of that review will be a calculation of which two paths would better serve U.S. interests. The United States could reaffirm its steadfast commitment to a longstanding partner, even if it risks drawing the United States into future wars of precisely the sort that a growing number of both Democrat and Republican leaders appear to be set on avoiding. Alternatively, it could lessen that commitment in an effort to reduce the danger of damaging entanglements, even if that means loosening a bond long seen as key to protecting U.S. energy and security interests in the Gulf. If the balance of the risks leads the administration down the second path, which seems the right one to us, it will likely want to revise U.S. security assurances so as to provide more room for maneuver in Yemen-like situations, which, although serious, 
fall far short of an existential threat. The soul-searching should, should extend beyond the executive branch. Congress has a role to play in preventing future Yemens, and indeed, it appears to recognize as much. In 2019, the House and Senate, outraged by the killing of Khashoggi, passed a resolution that would have required the United States to withdraw from the hostilities in Yemen, but Trump vetoed it. The bill invoked the 1973 War Powers Resolution, which was designed to limit the executive branch's power to enter armed conflicts. But even if it had passed, it would likely have been ignored by the administration because of the latitude that the executive branch has given itself over the years to interpret key terms in the 1973 resolution flexibly. If Congress wants to play a bigger role in decisions about whether to involve the United States in future misadventures, it will have to amend that act. In its current form, the War Powers Resolution applies only to conflicts in which U.S. troops are either giving or receiving fire, not ones in which the United States is merely providing arms and advisors. Congress should change the law so that a president must obtain approval and periodic reapproval if he or she wants the United States to give support at levels that would effectively make it a party to the conflict. A reform like this would do nothing if Congress were more bellicose than the president, of course. But even so, it would be wise if it took the consent of two branches of government rather than one to enter a war. Such a change would make it less likely that the United States would get drawn into quagmires in the first place, and more likely that it would correct course if it did. The war in Yemen is a tragedy for its people, an enduring source of instability for the region, and an open wound for the United States. At this point, however, however it ends, it is unlikely to end well. At the very least, the United States owes, itself, owes it to itself and to the victims of the war to learn something from the disaster. That would be one way in which the precedent in Yemen might do Washington and the world some good. If it forced U.S. officials to candidly re-examine the United States' posture in the Gulf and recognize how easy it can be, despite the best of intentions, to get pulled into disaster. The end. So, we've completed this. We can have about a 10-minute discussion and cut off the episode. What do you think they're saying here? What do you think the takeaways are? It's a very... The amendment of the War Powers Act would fundamentally change the amount of power that the executive branch has. Definitely, yeah. And we're saying a uh, very interesting uh, uh, proposal of having two branches of government make these decisions uh, and also limiting the War Powers Act. So they're talking about policy change in the United States so we don't get... Uh, it's not so... Well, to me, there's two things here. One is uh, where we don't get uh, embroiled in something that we shouldn't be embroiled in. But also, uh, our presence may be, the question is, have we made it worse? Yeah. You know, are we making it worse by, by being part of it? Because one side or the other or two sides will get help from us. And are we just fueling the fire? Are we trying to put it out? And so maybe... I get more more people at the table, more eyes uh, reading this, more more minds thinking about what should be done. Uh, again, debate, debate uh, more than one branch of government. And I mean, this is a very cynical view, but you don't see the tragedy play out on American TV. You don't see the children starving. You don't see the people shot in the streets. You don't see the the civilian targets bombed and civilians lying dead, you know, on the ground. And I think one reason you may not see that is, and this is my cynical political worldview, is 
you know, $250 million contract for these weapons manufacturers to sell their goods to, to Saudi Arabia just, just for this conflict. So do they have an interest? I mean, does the military-industrial complex have an interest in sort of seeing peace throughout the world? Or are these hot zones where they make their bread and butter? And those military contractors employ a lot of Americans. And the manufacture of these goods and the maintenance and the parts, that's not just a decision that, that the president makes. That's American jobs. And that's millions of dollars flowing this way from Saudi oil money. And I think that in order to justify that, you just have to sweep the human rights abuses and the, the inhumanity under the rug. And the question is, I think that a good job has been done of that because this crisis, did you learn more about the Yemen crisis today than you knew in the, in the last six years of the conflict? Me? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I learned so much more of this than I have my whole life. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah. today, just reading this article, I sort of knew there was the Houthis, there was the traditional government, and the Saudis were fighting the Houthis. I knew that much. And I knew that there was mass starvation, and the Saudis were using strong-arm tactics against civilians. I knew that. But just sort of how we got into the conflict, the dangerous sort of tiptoe act, and... I'm sure that Obama's decision, and these guys don't mention it, Malley and uh, uh, Pomper, but Obama's decision probably had something to do with, okay, we can sort of be a moderating force, but also we can sell weapons. I think that that's, that's a back-of-the-envelope calculation when you say, okay, we'll help you because we have a security guarantee and we might be able to moderate your behavior. But also, that's our stated goal. But also our unstated goal is, we're going to sell a hell of a lot of weapons because of this. And I think that that wasn't touched on in this article, but that's true, right? I, that's a good point, David. It's a very good point. Very good point. I think uh, it's, it's part of the calculus. It's part of the calculus. Whether you say it or not, it is part of the calculus because mm-hmm. it is happening. And it does benefit us. At the the one time they said it was in the final section, where it's like, if we choose not to participate, Saudi Arabia will find armament from somewhere, whether that's Turkey, Russia, China, someone will arm them. And it's like, so it's part of the calculus also, well, if we don't take this opportunity to arm them in their misguided war that's causing mass starvation and killing a lot of civilians, not only will they still do it, but it'll also benefit one of our adversaries. Like, so that's part of the calculations too. That's right. It's so and it, so what so what's the consequences of that? If we if we didn't, if we took a hard line saying, no, this has to stop, and so they go to one of our adversaries, and all of a sudden now all the money uh, is rerouted from us to them, and they become strong because they start building up their military. Yeah. They become so the what supplier would it do the world of peace. They become the supplier of first resort. It's not yeah, just so, so it is tough. Do. I don't know. The thing about reading this article is I don't have any concrete suggestions for what should be done in Yemen. I don't know whether or not involving ourselves in this conflict was the right idea. They seem to think it was the wrong idea, and yet you can see that the consequences of involvement and non-involvement are both bad. 
because Saudi Arabia had a hankering to do this, and they were going to do it whether we were involved or not, whether the United States was involved or not. Um, Life thing from your comment, David, I think it also uh, illustrates, again, very well how complicated these decisions are. It's not just one dimensional. It's very complicated. And there's a lot of there's a lot of perspectives on it. There's a lot of views. There's a lot of uh, fallout, a lot of benefit. Uh, and it's not an easy question at all. So it's so you have to be careful when you say this should be done. Something that that is very positive initially could turn out to be bad. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's a hard it's very difficult. Yes. And I think uh, to me, that's my takeaway. There's no easy answer. There's no easy answer. And my final word before we get into the wrap up here is where you stand depends on where you sit. And I think that's always important when we're reading these. These are American policy. Oops. American policy advisors that have worked in the Middle East. So their framework will be, this is America's role. This is how we got here. This is maybe how we should proceed as Americans. I think this article would have been vastly different if you uh, had it written by the captain of the guard of one of the Houthi militia groups, or if you had it written by the defense minister of Saudi Arabia. Um, you would see... Very much more, this is Saudi Arabia's position. This is why we're perpetrating this war. This is an ex existential threat to us, and we need to shut down the Houthis on our southern border. If you have a Houthi leader, he would say, Saudi Arabia, they're participating in all sorts of inhumane things. 80% of the country protects us. United States waged a war in Iraq to make the world safe for democracy. If we held an election today, we'd win in a landslide. Why are they sending support to the Saudis to sort of... I mean, you would see much different arguments if, depending on who's telling the story, I guess is what I'm saying. And if Iran was telling the story, how, yes. would, they, how would they frame it? Uh-huh. They would have a whole different view. They would say, and I And arguments. And they would have arguments, and they would have facts, and they would have a perspective. And I'm not saying you agree with all the different sides. Uh, I'm saying, as Senses Akwaii, you listen to all the sides and try to understand what what they mean and and how and where they're coming from, mm -hmm. and, and uh, understand people and try to say, yeah, their interests and our interests are not the same. But if you understand their interests and you know your interests, and you, you don't think of it unilaterally, you to try to think of something that's going to bring everyone together. Yeah, and I think that's. I mean, one of the I like these foreign affairs episodes, even though they go long, they, I think we have to take an hour and a half because we spend a half an hour reading and then we have an hour discussion. But we're sort of bringing the, the context that a lot of news organizations don't even bring by looking at this periodical and then having our discussion about it. I think that it's a, it's a valuable exercise and we come away learning more about Yemen than 99% of Americans and anyone who listened to this podcast will know more about the conflict in Yemen than 99% of Americans. And whether or not that gives us guidance on what the American policy should be towards Yemen is, you know, it's up to you. I don't feel like I have any clarity on the appropriate decision, but I'm not one of the decision makers. I think that being aware of what's happening is equally as important for someone like me. You know, if well, part, I, of, part of being a decision maker is understanding the situation. I think... What we've done today is for people who knew nothing about it, knew a little bit about it, 
from their perspective, uh, Robert Malley and uh, uh, Stephen Pomper, their perspective was is a perspective, and also there's a lot of facts. Mm-hmm. And I think what we do here, David, for an hour and a half, I think that's perfectly fine. Uh, if you go to a university and you listen to to uh, international business or international politics, and you go to a lecture, uh, you're going to be there for a lot of hours. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, for uh, uh, the common populace, just the common citizen of of the United States, a responsible citizen of the United States would not worry about sitting here for an hour and a half listening and even talking and thinking about these issues uh, that is important to the world and people because we are part of the world and the people, no matter where they are in the world, are part of our part of our part of our humanity, our culture, our civilization. And it's important. And I think it's like sitting at a in a university and listening to something, the facts of something. Mm-hmm. It's not sitting in front of a TV getting enraged over Dr. Pundit with their perspective or uh, a sports team uh, where you disagree with a ref or the, uh, or the umpire and you start yelling at them. Mm-hmm. That really has very little value or meaning uh, outside the game. Uh, but this is extremely serious. And the other thing too, like wh- I think you said, what if it was here? Yeah. When you hear about the atrocities and starvation and murder, you think, oh, that's terrible. But what if it what if you were there? I think I think uh, we need to find these things. We need to see these as very, very serious and 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 treat them accordingly. Yes. And I want to say this because people will say, well, why don't you donate to Yemeni? Uh, getting food there or, you know, or, you know, helping these people. And I'm not going to do that. And people will say, well, then, you know, you're basically not doing anything. But I will say, you know, to the people out there suffering in Yemen, um, you know, I may not help you, but I am aware that you exist. And that's more than most Americans. I'm aware that this is a situation on the ground. And we're bringing awareness by broadcasting this episode. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely, David. And that's yeah, it, it's caring. I think what what you give more important, well, uh, extremely important is what you give is you care. Yes, you really do care. And as far as giving money or giving help or giving aid or whatever it is, uh, to me, you do it not to justify yourself, but you do it out of out of a, a caring. Mm-hmm. A real sense of you really do care. I mean, I do. I, I do. I feel bad for these people, but I also feel like caring is one thing. But it starts with awareness. I think that yes, a lot is. of people would care if they were aware. But in a, I mean, I hate to be like Dr. Sousa. Many would care if they were aware. But nobody knows what's going on over there because uh, mainstream media is like a noose. They hang you up with Dr. Seuss. That's my Dr. Seuss rhyme. Uh, there's and a lot. You will care if you were aware. <laughs> if you will care if you were aware, and if you were there, you would want to be just about anywhere else. So, the conflict in Yemen. We've covered it today. We've learned a little bit. We've discussed a little bit. We've gotten some opinions from experts. Is there anything you'd like to say as we close today's episode? Well, David, this has been good. 
Uh, I appreciate your comments. Uh, and uh, I like what we're doing because I think everyone should just keep on talking. But listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. <laughs>